Welcome to this edition of Security and Compliance Weekly. Today, we're joined by Tim Callahan, who is SVP and Global CISO for AFLAC, who's going to give us a sneak preview of his upcoming talk at InfoSec World, which is entitled, From Compliance to Resiliency, The Evolution of Information Security. Anyone that puts compliance in the talk title of a talk that they intend to give at InfoSec, uh, or at any InfoSec conference, really, is welcome to come on this show and talk about it. So join us as we continue our journey of tearing down silos and building bridges on Security and Compliance Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. And now, it's the show that bridges the requirements of regulations, compliance, and privacy with those of security. Your trusted source for complying with various mandates, building effective programs, and current compliance news. It's time for Security and Compliance Weekly. Some things are best kept secret. You wouldn't send your company's financial data through the mail on a postcard. Then why would you let your employees use insecure collaboration and file share tools to share sensitive business information? Introducing Crossclave, a file sharing and collaboration solution built secure from the ground up. Think Signal, only designed specifically for business and enterprise users. Crossclave uses blockchain technology and end-to-end encryption to deliver a true zero-trust system designed to protect you and your business's most valuable data. So if if you need to share sensitive information, SpiderOak's Crossclave is your only choice. Go to securityweekly.com forward slash SpiderOak and get a free account with five gigabytes of storage. Welcome to episode 84 of Security and Compliance Weekly, recorded on August 24th, 2021. I'm your host, Mr. Jeff Mann, and joining me remotely, of course, are my co-hosts, Mr. Scott Lyons and Ms. Kat Valentine. Welcome We've all recovered and survived from our week in Las Vegas, hopefully. Yeah, yes. totally looking forward to uh, uh, InfoSec World. And I think we have Gurkhan coming up next. Uh, you're going to be there, right, Jeff? I, I am going to be there, yes. Are you going to be there? I'm thinking about it really, really hard right now, uh, especially with this Delta variant running around. I mean, it's kind of difficult yeah, to make I mean, that decision, uh, you know, as uh, you know, current plans are to be there, uh, and I think they are going to be uh, following the norm of, you know, obviously requiring masks. I'm not sure if I've gotten a notice. I, I just get a notice. I think where they're gonna uh, want you to bring your vaccination card. Uh, yeah, I, I got that for Burton. Forget which one. Yep. That might have been thought. Well, we had DEFCON, and and it worked out. It actually worked out really well. So, if you're going to a conference, just make sure that you have it with you. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was great. I'm, I'm concerned that I, I might need to laminate my vaccine card because I might be pulling it out for the foreseeable future. Uh, But then, then maybe I should wait till after I get the booster shot. Uh, But if you did, if you do not have your vax card, most states have a system where you can go and get it printed. So if you don't have it. Don't worry, get the printout and keep that with you. Well, we te- we try to be a uh, full-service public service uh, podcast, uh, and along those lines, we have a few announcements. InfoSec World 2021 is proud to announce its keynote lineup for this year's in-person event. Hear from Robert Herjavec. I cannot get his name right to save my Herjavec. life. Herjavec. Plus, heads of security at the NFL, TikTok, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Stanford University, and more. InfoSec World is actually going to be held October 25th through 27th at 
27th at Disney's Contemporary Resort, which is in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. And Security Weekly listeners can save 20% off the World Pass or Main Conference registration. To get this discount, go to securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2021 and register now. Uh, or register after we've talked to our guest today, who's going to talk to us about InfoSec World in his presentation. Um, also, Security Weekly Unlocked is going to be held in person so far, it, December 5th through 7th at Hilton Lake Buena Vista, also in Florida. First round speakers include Leslie Carhart, Dave Kennedy, Alyssa Miller, O'Shea Bowens, Marina Chivada. Patrick Coble, Chris Ang, Eric Escobar, Nick Leghorn, Michael Schlatt, Kevin Johnson, and Justin Kohler. Go to securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked to register and check out more information about unlocked. All right, enough of that. Our guest today, Tim Callahan, served 23 years in the U.S. Air Force, and thank you for your service, sir. And since retiring from the military, he's worked at several banks, and he eventually found his way to Aflac, which I believe he started in 2014. And since 2016, he's been in his current role, where he's responsible for directing Aflac's global security strategy, leading the information security, business continuity, and disaster recovery functions across the company to do uh, to prioritize security initiatives and allocate resources based on appropriate risk assessment. And in his free time, he gives conference talk. Tim, welcome to Security and Compliance Weekly. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, we appreciate your uh, willingness to come on and, and, and give us a, a little bit of a, a teaser about your upcoming talk at InfoSec World. Um, we, you know, first just like to ask, uh, and, you know, I gave a little bit of your bio, but, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up, uh, you know, in a career of InfoSec and how you got to where you are today at Aflac. Yeah, so I'll give you the very short version of it. Uh, it could get pretty long if I'm not careful, but, you know, after serving in the military, I, I was in the Air Force. My core profession in the Air Force was explosive ordnance disposal. And often people say, well, how did that lead you to, to cybersecurity? And uh, I, I did have with, throughout my career in the Air Force, uh, EOD units were very small uh, self-contained units. So we had a lot of, uh, quote, additional duties when we weren't actually disarming bombs or protecting the president or doing the other missions that we did. We, we, uh, and I was always drawn to the additional duty of information security officer, communication security, operation security, those kinds of things. Uh, and uh, because of my profession, we had a whole lot of classified information, uh, you know, just vaults and vaults of it. Uh, we worked a lot with the Intel community, so we had a lot of very, uh, you know, compartment of information as well. And so that you know, when I retired, uh, that was one of the, uh, the the areas I felt that I, I would really enjoy going into and got that opportunity, beginning with SunTrust Bank. Uh, and then, you know, so now for over 20 years I've, in the civilian world, I've, I've had a, a cybersecurity, information security role, uh, being a CISO at, at several organizations, and now winding up at AFLAP. Well, I, I think I can speak uh, for most hackers uh, when I say you had me, you blew stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> that part. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That is. 
And, and, and there's a whole lot of risk correlation uh, to cyber between, you know, explosives and, and, uh, and, and the risk, uh, probably the psychology and, and the methodology around risk management in that space and one in cyber. And, and you know, the, the most important thing, you know, in the Air Force is always to remember that in the Air Force, our mission wasn't to disarm bombs. It was to deliver, you know, our own, own target. But uh, we played a very crucial role in protecting those assets so that uh, they were enabled to accomplish the mission. And, and then, of course, being a, a DOD resource, not just an Air Force resource, uh, we had a lot of different plays. And, and what I remember and, and always helped my team to understand is the mission of AFLAC is to take care of our customers, to be there when they need us most. Our, our role as cybersecurity is to protect our customers uh, and, and and protect our company so that we can deliver on that promise. Gotcha. Well, uh, we like to ask all of our guests uh, a, a qualifying question, which we call the hot seat question. And this is not a right or wrong answer type of question. It's more opinion, more give us and our audience a chance to understand a little bit where you're coming from. Uh, we're a show that's focused on security and compliance uh, and, and where the two meet and don't meet and should meet and so on and so forth. So uh, the question simply put is where do you fall on this thing that we like to call the security versus compliance continuum. Yeah, and 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 that's you know a, a lot of my talk that I, I'll give at infosec <laughs> really talks through that. But I don't I don't see a conflict. I, I do see it as a continuum. You know, I see mm -hmm. compliance as the table stakes, so to speak. Uh, if you're in a regulated industry like we are. Uh, banking, insurance, those health care, those kinds of uh, industries where you, you know, you've got a lot of customer information, you've got a lot of client, very personal information, stuff that would could cause damage, definitely reputational harm if, if you were to leak it. Um, you know, I, I think compliance is just what we have to do to stay in business. And I, I see it as an essential element of that, of building our trust. Uh, you know, for uh, a long time, I've, I've always contended that, you know, in the realm of, of uh, risk, you know, you've got compliance risk, you've got security or the kind of the real risk, and then you have the reputational risk. Um, mm -hmm. you know, any one of those things can be great, but if the perception is that it's not, then you, 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 you know, you definitely are damaging your reputation. So I think uh, they complement one another. I don't think you can rely on compliance for security. I, I think you know we we see across the the history of companies that have been breached. Mm -hmm. Most every one of them had have gone through had gone through some level of compliance check, right? Whether it's PCI, right. you know, regulatory compliance. And but yet they were breached. So that kind of tells us that passing a compliance check is not enough, uh, that you have to really uh, pay attention to the, you know, the, the threat, quantify what that threat is, you know, or you're more subject to criminal nation state, all of those uh, kinds of things, and then take appropriate action for that. So again, I don't see it as a versus, I see it as a complement. 
Gotcha. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on that, and I'm sure we'll dive into that more as you you know give us a little bit of a teaser about your talk. I did want to ask you, though, it, it occurred to me that we've been adver- advertising InfoSec World for you know weeks now on all the Security Weekly shows, and I'm not I don't know that all of our audience has ever been to an InfoSec world. So if you don't mind, could you just give us a, a little bit of a, a glimpse as to what uh, the InfoSec world as a conference itself is like? And I know you know Scott's worked it for several years. He can certainly weigh in on this. I don't know if Kat's ever been to one oh, or not. Yes. But, nope, I've never been, and I'm really looking forward to the answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's your audience. Convince Kat why she should not miss InfoSec World. Go. Well, what I like to say, InfoSec World, and I've been involved with uh, InfoSec World. You know, at one point, it was part of the MIS Training Institute, and, of course, the Cyber Risk Alliance uh, purchased that. Uh, I I think the flavor has stayed the same, though. And and so it, it... in my view, it provides a good, well-rounded uh, conference. You have technical tracks, you have leadership tracks, you have tracks dedicated to compliance and to privacy. Uh, so I think it, it, it plays well. You know, you can look at, at both ends of it, and this is something MIS had, had instituted many years ago, is dedicated workshops on each side of that. And, and I've, I've actually hosted workshops for the, the whole MIS organization. Um, I, I remember doing the eight-hour workshop on, um, you know, on establishing and, and maturing a governance uh, process uh, and the importance of that. So, you know, what you have is a full plate of, of options. And, you know, and, and then I like the, the size of it. It's large enough that you get a good cross section of uh, companies represented of, of various, uh, you know, roles within the security organization. Right. But it's not so large that, you know, it's unmanageable. And, you know, some, some conferences just get so large that, yeah, you know, you're really challenged to to take advantage of everything. So I, I think it's a good good mix. And you know, I'm sure Cyber Risk Alliance wants it to continue to grow. And I'm not saying we should throttle the growth, but I do like kind of the the, the more intimacy of of the conference. That's so it good. sounds That's a good. little sounds like a I'm choose fine. your own adventure sort of deal. Yes, it is. <laughs> Um, it, it sounds a little bit like the intention of B-Sides. I happen to be wearing a B-Sides shirt today uh, just because I felt like I wanted to wear purple. No particular reason other than that. Um, so so let's shift gears a little bit and and talk about your talk. And, and I was reading the, you know, the abstract, the description that you wrote up for your talk, and, and your opening uh, sentence thesis statement is – Um, because only maintaining compliance is not enough to protect your business from the ever-evolving threat landscape. In this session, we will consider the intersection and codependence of compliance with security, maturity, defensibility, and resiliency. I wanted to uh, focus on that statement very briefly, uh, and something I like to do on, on, on this show is to not make assumptions that people know that 
what any of us are talking about. So I would ask if you could just simply sort of unpack that sentence a little bit, and in particular, uh, give us some sort of working definitions, or at least what you have in mind of the definitions of these terms, like, <laughs> this is a loaded one, security, maturity, defensibility, and resiliency, if you would, please. Sure. So again, I'll stick to the short version. The talk will expand on on, on what those are uh, it, mm-hmm. with very practical examples. But you know, I see compliance as a uh, as a program that assesses the regulatory or 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 the statutory or the uh, compl- you know the the programmatic. Uh, aspects and uh, and and then complies with that, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. again, I know that you shouldn't use the word you're defining in the definition. I, I've got it, but um, so you know, PCI is not a law, although there's a couple of states I think has adopted, you know, as a statutory uh, element. But PCI is a uh, an industry. Uh, set of standards that if you participate in payment cards, you are expected to comply with, right? So that's a clear, here's the standard, here's the kind of checklist, if you will, check that off and, and, and you know, you comply. And, and there's rigor behind it, depending on your, you know, what level you're, you're, you're at, you have to either have a, a, a you know, a QSA come in and evaluate it or, or whatever, but it, it's compliance. If you look at regulatory compliance, you know, and, you know, things like the banking industry has the uh, federal financial industry examination council handbooks that tell you what to comply with. It's a scripted, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there's no judgment involved. There certainly is, but it, it's, it's a fairly straightforward kind of thing. And, and then you have uh, the concept of security. And, you know, as, as I talked about before, uh, you can't assume because you're compliant, you're secure. A security program tends to go beyond compliance in that you'll see things like, a, you know, a strong threat intelligence program tied to it, a, uh, you know, assessments against particular um, applications, data, environments uh there's just a a rigor about understanding what you have uh and 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 being able to secure that you you know the the nist framework is a cybersecurity framework you can claim that's a compliance but the intent Mm -hmm. of the cybersecurity framework is not to be compliance but to be a framework to to have you think through processes and think through then maturity is how you measure that and, and how you rate it. And, and you can have a maturity scale based on the CMM, you know, the Carnegie Mellon Institute kind of um, process uh, or the, the numeric process. You can have it based on the, on the NISC uh, four scales, uh, but it's, it's really how do you rate, how do you measure, and how do you track your maturity? And, and maturity is, is about getting buy-in from your company, from your board, from your government structure, whatever that is, uh, buy-in that's saying this is the right target for our threat, our, our, uh, our risk appetite, um, this is the target that we're going to set for our company. And, you know, different industries will have different targets. 
uh, for, for various reasons. And, and, you know, we've gone through the whole exercise of determining what's the right target for us. Um, you know, we, we have a strategy. We, we definitely want to be at our peers, maybe a little bit better than our peers, uh, but not, you know, not on par with the DOD industry, for instance. Uh, you would expect, you know, uh, multinational uh, global banks and defense industries to, to be at a higher maturity level because the, the threat drives it. So the maturity is all about how to measure it, how to quantify it. And then that kind of leads into defensibility. You know, for, for years, I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to regress just a little bit. I remember when I first uh, became involved in security at a bank, uh, our program was a lot more around compliance because, you know, although there was a threat uh, and we occasionally had criminal attacks, the reality is uh, our, our business model really drove us to make sure that we could continue to do business. Therefore, we had to be compliant with our regulatory regimen and, and, and be able to prove that compliance. Uh, so that was the big emph emphasis. And, and I remember, you know, it was almost a discipline in itself, uh, an art maybe would be better to describe it, uh, of convincing the regulator you were compliant, right? So that was how we were incented and, and that's how we, uh, you know, we kind of made our money or showed our worth to the business. And, and as security became more, you know, with the threat generating, obviously that expanded that. So anyway, maturity, jumping back, maturity is is measuring that. And then now, uh, and, and in probably the last five or six years, maybe longer, CISOs have to start thinking a lot more defensibility. And, and what does that mean? And, and that's kind of driven, it's almost a, a uniquely American thing, a US uh, American thing in some respects because of all the litigation that has uh, come out because of security incidents. So you have to think through the lens of, I've, you know, my company, we have made this risk decision uh, how would we defend that? Because, you know, in our society, you don't get a lot of grace once you have an incident, right? It's it's mm -hmm. everybody immediately assumes you've gone from a wonderful company to bad guy. And, and so uh, every decision you make starts taking a different lens. What seemed to be a, a, a reasonable and rational decision is all of a sudden now becoming questioned. So I think, uh, you know, working with your risk structure and your company, you think, I think the CISO has to think through that. Is this a defensible decision? If it's not a defensible decision or it's one that you, you, you can't uh, reasonably defend, then I think you put that back forward and saying, well, maybe that wasn't a good decision and, and let's rethink that. Hmm. Now, uh, we, we've come to... Uh, a state where and, and a lot of this has, you know, this, this wisdom has come from uh, a book uh, that was written by uh, Richard A. Clark and Robert Kanaki is, uh, it's called uh, The Fifth Domain. And uh, in, in that book, you know, uh, Richard Clark, Dick Clark, uh, I remember he spoke to our board many years ago and, and used what we all had kind of adopted 
as a uh, as a phrase there's two kinds of companies those that have been breached and know it and those have been breached and don't know it and uh, and i remember that very well because uh our the the uh, the lead director of the board, the, the head of the audit committee, when Dick said that, asked me, you know, to, to comment on that. And fortunately, I hadn't been there very long. And, and so I was able to answer that as um, not to my knowledge. <laughs> you know, I have seen no indication uh, that we have been breached, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm new here. So, uh, but at any rate, uh, when, when uh, he and Rob, um, wrote the fifth domain, they did a ton of research and they came to the conclusion that there's a third kind of company. And that's the company that has made a priority of achieving or working towards cyber resilience. And, and the definition of cyber resilience is, uh, you know, again, the short definition is that you can withstand all sorts of incidents and be resilient, coming out the other side, handling it, and, and, and coming out okay. And, you know, so they studied a, a lot of companies that had had uh, significant incidents, but yet they came out okay because they had achieved this level of resiliency that they could absorb it. And, and you know, you can, you can kind of think through that in, in, in different aspects, but you know, one of the things I, I use an ex, as an example is J.P. Morgan, and many of you may recall a few years back when when they were breached and um, they had uh, had penetration, but they contained it. Right? They they contained it, and I I can remember the talk that Jamie Dimon came out. You know, he was very bold in coming out and said, "Hey, we spend two hundred and fifty million dollars a year on security." We'll spend more. We're dedicated to this, but at some point, you know, the the, the criminals are at it all the time. And, and I'm certainly paraphrasing his speech. I don't remember all. I just remember what uh, struck right. me. Uh, but you know, they took a bold step. They were prepared. They 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 addressed it, uh, and, and and quite honestly, they came out okay. You look at some of the other companies that have been breached. They didn't come out quite so okay. I mean, they, you know, they wound up paying huge settlements. They, you know, all these other kinds of things. So cyber resilience has really got to be where our company goes. And I think it's very important to say is I'm achieving, we're working towards achieving cyber resilience like many companies, but I still have to comply, right? I still have to take care of the security aspects. I still have to measure maturity. I still have to look at the, the lens of defensibility. So it's not like this is going to fix that, but cyber resilience makes the other uh, easier. Does that that all makes make sense? a lot of sense. I usually think about maturity and this um, resiliency on a scale from one to five, where it's like, all right, uh, let's take uh, uh, just a basic example. Let's take an inventory list. You need to have a good asset list, right, to know what you're protecting. Yep. Um, and that maturity, so maturity, a level one would be we, we do it manually in a spreadsheet. And then for five, for me, at least how I think of it, is we automate it. Um, maybe there's something that pulls from AWS, GCP, Azure to populate what you have because that's kind of the kind of what we have now, right? Is, uh, you know, you can tear down, uh, you can tear down instances, bring instances back up. And so you might need 
an inventory list to keep up with that. No human can keep up with that. Um, put that across all these different, uh, you know, requirements and things like that, which are pretty much a good baseline for security. Um, and if you're hitting five and automating a lot of things, you know, I, I feel like that goes hand in hand with defensibility, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I do. I think maturity definitely is an aspect of defensibility. And, and what you're doing in that is you're saying, as a company, we have, based on our size and complexity, we have thought through this. We have made a reasonable business judgment, and, and that is a defensible term, right? a reasonable business judgment, that this is the risk tolerance of the organization, and we have attuned all of our controls towards that tolerance. Uh, right. And in my view, that's defensible. Yeah. You know, as, as, as being on this show, we've had a lot of really stoic people uh, come on and um, be with us. And we get a chance to talk to a lot of C-level execs. And one of the questions that I absolutely love to ask anytime I get to meet a C-level exec is about business decisions. Do you see your team or your direction putting more emphasis on tools versus people and building process? No. Well, my, my philosophy is you don't buy a tool till you have a process. It's, it's almost like if it doesn't work on the whiteboard, you're not ready to buy a tool, right? Uh, and I, I believe that in, in the journey towards maturity or achieving your maturity targets, you have to differentiate between those different aspects of is this okay as a manual process? You know, is it supportable? Is it, uh, you know, uh, something that you can keep up with, et cetera? Uh, which again, as you as you grow in the the, the organization, uh, you know, from a complexity, size, those kinds of things, that the answer becomes, you know, less and less. Uh, I can do it manually, but you you have to take every one of those decisions through the lens of, you know, do we understand it? Do we have a process? Uh, do we think through it? And then once you've kind of got all that, then you can go looking for your tool. Um, you know, I know that a lot of the security vendors, they want to come and sell you on, this is the problem and therefore you need my tool to fix this problem. And, and I, I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that if you as your organization don't understand the problem, you're not ready to invest in a tool. So that that's kind of my philosophy. I, I also think that, um, it's very rare that you see a tremendous lift on uh, tools replacing the need for talented people. Uh, I, I know, you know, there, there was a time where we could say, well, we're going to automate this, therefore we don't need X. And, and while the, the workforce may be less because of automation, you still need that fundamental skill. Uh, so I'm, I'm very big on making sure you have good, strong, qualified people that you're investing in uh, people that you're giving them the ongoing, uh, the opportunity for ongoing education. In fact, to some degree, you know, as you reach the higher maturity levels, you really have to have a formal training program to make sure that your folks are at that uh, skill level. So maturity is just as much about making sure your people are trained and qualified as, as mm -hmm. having, you know, the appropriate automated process. 
So okay, start out so, with no, you're saying. Uh, yeah. No, what, where I was really headed with that was, uh, how are you defining that a process needs to be put in place prior to purchasing a tool? Like, what is what is your methodology as a C-level exec to say, this is a problem, we need a process, get a process in place, grab a tool to bolster the process? Yeah, and, and it may sound very archaic, uh, you know, with all the, the modern tooling that we have, but I, I believe the fundamental of any program is an enterprise risk assessment, um, information risk assessment, whatever, you know, you, you want to call it. Uh, okay. I think that's the fundamentalist where you, you, you know, you go through the steps of understanding in, in a good risk assessment, you know, you're, you're going, you're defining business, your business profile, what business are we in, you know, what direction, what's the nuance of that, um, you, you know, uh, you, you may think, well, you're an insurance company, that's obvious. Well, mm -hmm. it's not really because we have you know, sub-businesses, we have a global investment arm, we have uh, subsidiaries that are, in, in essence, a software uh, company. We have So we have a lot that goes into our enterprise risk assessment. But anyway, you do a risk assessment, so you quantify that. You quantify, part of the risk assessment uh, after the business profile is the, your technology profile. What technology does the business need in order to achieve business ends? And then you start you know, uh, whittling that down to, uh, you know, what what are the controls necessary based on the business profile, based on the data, obviously, uh, based on the technology, what are the processes that we need to be, that we have, we need to have to cover ourselves uh, within a defined risk tolerance. And again, I keep emphasizing that because that is a corporate decision. That's not a Tim decision. That's a corporate mm -hmm. decision. You know, we go to the board and say, okay, to what tolerance do you want us to secure the environment? Uh, and, and obviously we have a fairly aggressive tolerance, but, um, but you, you put that within your, your, your risk assessment process so that you're, you're starting to define risk, recording on a risk register, modeling your risk uh, to that uh, and, and, and saying, okay, you know, what's our inherent risk? What's our, you know, kind of programmatic capabilities? And then what is the gap for that? And then as you right, pull right. through that process, then you start determining what's the best way to fill that gap. You know, so are you using are you using RMF for it? Are you using PCI? Is it a hodgepodge? Like, what is the basis for that? And then after after that question, Jeff, if you want to take us. Well, let me. You know, so we use the NIST cybersecurity framework, okay, uh, and again, okay. uh, that's our primary. Certainly, we've got PCI considerations that factor into that. So as you're going through your risk profile, you're listing all the things you have to comply with, right? You have to address the framework helps you quant or, or helps you gives you direction towards that. And then, you know, we have an independent partner come in and help us, uh, you know, as we defined our framework, uh, helped us with, uh, you know, a maturity path that would achieve uh, our maturity targets uh, using the framework and, and what controls uh, spell that out. And then we implemented a cyber assurance program to continuously monitor that to make sure that we're, you know, if we've implemented a process, we've implemented a tool or whatever, that it's really achieving uh, effectiveness. 
So that, that's the methodology we used. Jeff? So I've let uh, this entire segment go uh, with Tim being the only one mentioning PCI, and I kind of find it funny. <laughs> I win. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I and mean, and, and Tim, that's because I, I, I've been a QSA for about 16 years, 17 years. So uh, PCI, we talk about all the time on this show. Um, I want to follow up on what you just said, uh, when we, but we need to take a break. So we will be right back. 